0: Hello, and welcome to Storytime for Grown-Ups. I'm Faith Moore, and this season we're reading Jane Eyre by Charlotte Bronte. Each episode, I'll read one chapter from the book, pausing from time to time to give brief explanations so it's easier to follow along. It's like an audiobook with built-in notes. So brew a pot of tea, find a cozy chair, and settle in. It's storytime. Hey there. Welcome back. It's so good to be here with you again. I you know, to be honest, I didn't know what it was going to be like to start this podcast. I've never had a podcast before and this is a kind of quirky one, but I have I love this and I love it because of all of the messages that I'm getting from you and all of the ways that we're interacting even though I'm actually just here in my little room talking to myself into this microphone, but then the episodes go out into the world and then I hear back from you and it's the loveliest thing. So thank you. Thank you for being here and thank you for contacting me and writing those reviews and doing those ratings and all of those ways that I'm hearing back from you and you're hearing from me and it's becoming a conversation and that is more than I could ever have hoped this. So thank you. Thank you for being here. And if you haven't already, and you're enjoying the show, I would love it if you would go and rate it five stars wherever you're listening. It really helps other people to find the show and other people to join this community and this conversation. If you're new here, if you just found out about Storytime for Grownups, welcome. I'm so glad you're here. I'm thrilled to have you joining us. If you're not familiar with Jane Eyre, you may want to pause this episode and go back to episode one. We're reading Jane Eyre chapter by chapter and pausing along the way for some notes. So you, this is going to be chapter six, so you might be a little lost if you start here. But if you do know Jane Eyre and you're just interested in joining a group of people that is reading this book together, then stick around. Don't forget that you can ask questions. I would love you to ask questions. I need you to ask questions about the chapter that we're doing each time. So, for example, this time, if you're listening and you hear something that you'd like me to explain further, something that was a little confusing, or just something that really interested you or excited you that you want to talk about further, you can pause the episode and scroll down to the show notes. There'll be a link there to contact me, or you can do that after the episode, and if you're you know, not here listening and you think of a question at some other time, just go to my website, faithkmore.com and click on contact. You can contact me that way, or you can also get in touch with me via X. I'm at faithkmore. You can send me a DM or you can just, you know, post something and tag me and I'll I'll get that. So those are all ways that you can ask questions. And by the way, don't feel like, oh no, I've fallen behind and, you know, I'm on chapter three, but Faith is already on chapter six, but I have a question about chapter three. What do I do? Don't feel like you can't ask those. You can still ask questions even if you even if we've moved on and but you're you know trying to catch up because life gets in the way ask your questions and you know it, it still might be relevant so I will pick the questions that seem like they make the most sense for me to answer each time and you know I might I've saved some so I might get to yours later so just ask those questions give me those comments I want this to be a conversation between me and you so please get those questions in as whenever you think of them or whenever you want to. So I got two questions that I'm going to answer today before we get started on chapter six, but before I answer them, let's just do a quick recap of chapter five so that it's easier to remember what we're talking about and also I think it'll help with thinking about these questions. So where we left off, Jane has finally gotten away from Mrs. Reed and Gateshead Hall, and she's been sent to Lowood School, which is Mr. Brocklehurst's school, and she's discovered that it's a charity school for children who have no parents, and it is not the nicest place in the world. It's very cold. They're not given enough to eat, but so far Jane is kind of making the best of things and trying to get a a handle on what's going on. She's met one other girl who kind of told her a little bit about, about the school, but not much, and who then got into trouble later. And she's met various teachers, most notably Miss Temple, who's kind of impressive and seems to be kind of in charge, and Miss Miller, who is a little bit more rushed and downtrodden and is the teacher for the, the youngest girls, the girls at the bottom of the school. So Jane's new life is beginning as a student away from her aunt and her cousins. Okay, so the first question comes to us from Patty. Patty writes, While listening to Chapter 5 and the horrible conditions of the boarding house, I wondered, how much of Jane Eyre is autobiographical to Charlotte Bronte? I don't know anything about her or her life, so I was curious. Okay, so this is a great question. Patty is wondering about Lowood School, this charity school that Jane has been sent to, and whether or not Charlotte Bronte, the author, had anything similar going on in her life. And this is actually a really astute question because... Many parts of Jane Eyre are actually sort of semi autobiographical. They sort of track loosely with Charlotte Bronte's life. The problem that we have right now is that many of them come later in the story and they would be huge spoilers if I revealed them now. So just for now, I will say that Charlotte was raised by an aunt. She She was raised by her father and an aunt. So her mother died when she was five, and her aunt came in to help take care of the children. And um, so she did have one living parent, but she also was raised by an aunt, the way that Jane is raised by an aunt. And then Charlotte and three of her sisters were sent to a school for clergymen's children. So the father was a clergyman, and three of Charlotte's sisters and Charlotte were sent to a school called Cowan Bridge. And people tend to think that Lowood is actually based on this school. Um, And there are some events that are coming up in the next few chapters that do mirror Charlotte's experience at Cowan Bridge. And even further in the novel, there are other little sort of pieces and snippets of things that you can then draw back into Charlotte's own life. And you know, if you want to know more about this, about how Charlotte Bronte's life and Jane Eyre's fictional life correspond, you can just Google parallels between Charlotte Bronte and Jane Eyre, but be warned because there are major spoilers coming up that you will find if you look at these articles. So, it's it's interesting to think about and to know that there are some autobiographical elements in Jane Eyre, but I would say maybe hold that thought until the until we get to the end of the story, and then maybe we can come back and take a look at some of those. So for now, yes, Charlotte Bronte went to a school called Cowan Bridge that was similar in many respects to Lowood School. Our second question, I'm gonna do two today. So our second question comes from Jacob Nalder via X. He writes, About the, quote, organ of veneration, end quote, I got the author as saying I still remember how she looked in a fancy way. Apparently, it has something to do with phrenology, but how common was it? We see it as quack science. Were they skeptical of it, or was it an emerging science? Okay, so let's remember in chapter five, Jane says, I suppose I have a considerable organ of veneration, for I retain yet the sense of admiring awe with which my eyes traced her steps. So just basically she was looking at miss temple and saying even now at the distance of all of these years i still think of miss temple with awe right and that's a considerable organ of veneration so my my capacity for venerating her is large is kind of one way to read that and it is the way to read it but also the organ of veneration does relate to something called phrenology so this question is interesting because you don't actually need to know about this in order to understand the story. And I think that's really important to note. Sometimes these classic books feel so inaccessible because there are all of these little things that, like, you know, you kind of somebody might tell you, like, well, the Organ of veneration is a concept from phrenology, which was a pseudoscience, you know, and it, you go on and on. And you're like, well, wait, what? I have to learn all about phrenology and, and Victorian England? And I, I'm i sorry, no, and close the book, right? So I want to be very clear that there's no reason to really know about phrenology in order to understand this part of the book or any part of the book, even though phrenology does actually come up again in the book. So that's an important point. On the other hand, knowing about this is an interesting detail, and it does, because it does come up later, it's interesting to kind of hang on to and think about and, you know, and wonder about as you read. So these are the kind of cool little deep dives that we can and should do. But also if these deep dives make you feel really uncomfortable and you don't want to know about this, then just skip this and listen to the story. It's a good story. You don't actually have to know all of this stuff. This is just for fun. Okay, so I just want to say that first because I I want you to feel comfortable listening to the story and not worrying whether you're missing all kinds of weird references to strange sciences from the 1800s, okay? But yes, so phrenology is what's called a pseudoscience. So it looks like science, but it's actually garbage. So it's something that people thought was scientifically true, but isn't. And it involves measuring the bumps on the skull in order to determine mental traits. So like this bump, if it's larger, it means that you're more sensitive emotionally, but this bump means that you're cold or or whatever, okay? You probably have seen diagrams from phrenology. It's like a picture of a head and then different sectors are like mapped out on it. You know, it's got lines and numbers and things mapped out on a head. So that's a diagram from phrenology. So phrenology was actually very popular during Charlotte Bronte's time. There were people who were trying to discredit it even then to say, no, this isn't real. This doesn't mean anything. But it was a big deal. And you could visit a phrenologist and have a reading and find out about your personality traits via the bumps on your head. And Charlotte Bronte actually seemed quite fascinated with phrenology. She visited a phrenologist herself and the report Um, you know, came back to her and she was able to read that. And she does incorporate phrenology into her books, this one and others that she wrote. And so the organ of veneration is one of the quote unquote organs, which were just these phrenological areas on the skull. And so that is a reference to phrenology when she's talking about the organ of veneration. But you also can just read it as she's saying, oh, well, I, you know, I have a, a large capacity for veneration. But the fact that she uses the word organ of veneration does alert us to the fact that she is she is mentioning phrenology there. Um, other organs will come up in this book. So other areas of you know the head that were believed in phrenology to mean different things will come up in the book. So if this is interesting to you, then look out for them and then write to me when you notice them and we can talk about them. Another, just to mention another pseudoscience that was popular at this time was physiognomy. Um, physiognomy was the belief that a person's facial features could indicate personality. So like if you have a a, a pronounced brow or like a receding chin or a, you know, a nose with a hook or, or whatever, that these things meant something about who you were as a person. And this will also play a part in Jane Eyre. So if this is interesting to you, then look out for that as well. And when you find it, write to me and then we'll come back and talk about it again if I get you know more notes about this because you know if this fascinates you then we can come back to this so this is a great question yes Charlotte Bronte was interested in phrenology yes it is in the book as is physiognomy so if this captivates your attention look out for those things Alright, those are our questions for today. Don't forget, you can ask questions. You should ask questions. Please ask questions, or just write it in and say something that you think is cool, and then I can sort of riff on it for a minute and we can have that conversation too. So look in the show notes. The link to contact me is right there. Or if you can't find that, I you can just go to my website, faithkmore.com, or find me on X at FaithKmore, and get those questions and comments to me so that we can keep this conversation going. All right. Let's get started with Chapter six of Jane Eyre" by Charlotte Bronte. It's story time. Chapter Six. The next day commenced as before, getting up and dressing by rush light. But this morning we were obliged to dispense with the ceremony of washing, so they didn't wash. The water in the pitchers was frozen. A change had taken place in the weather the preceding evening. And a keen northeast wind whistling through the crevices of our bedroom windows all night long had made us shiver in our beds and turned the contents of the ewers to ice before the long hour and a half of prayers and bible reading was over i felt ready to perish with cold breakfast time came at last and this morning the porridge was not burnt the quality was eatable the quantity small how small my portion seemed i wish it had been doubled In the course of the day I was enrolled a member of the fourth class, and regular tasks and occupations were assigned me. Hitherto I had only been a spectator of the proceedings at Lowood. I was now to become an actor therein. At first, being little accustomed to learn by heart, the lessons appeared to me both long and difficult. The frequent change from task to task, too, bewildered me. And I was glad when, about three o'clock in the afternoon, Miss Smith put into my hands a border of muslin two yards long, together with needle, thimble, etc., and sent me to sit in a quiet corner of the schoolroom with directions to hem the same. So she's been asked to, to work on her sewing, which feels more comfortable and familiar to her. At that hour, most of the others were sewing likewise, but one class still stood round Miss Scatcherd's chair reading. And as all was quiet, the subject of their lessons could be heard together with the manner in which each girl acquitted herself, and the animadversions, so the criticisms, or commendations of Miss Scatcherd on the performance. It was English history. Among the readers I observed my acquaintance of the veranda. She sees the girl she spoke to yesterday. At the commencement of the lesson, her place had been at the top of the class, but for some error of pronunciation or some inattention to stops, she was suddenly sent to the very bottom. Even in that obscure position, Miss Scatcherd continued to make her an object of constant notice. She was continually addressing to her such phrases as the following. Burns, such it seems was her name. The girls here were all called by their surnames, as boys are elsewhere. Burns, you are standing on the side of your shoe. Turn your toes out immediately. Burns, you poke your chin most unpleasantly. Draw it in. Burns, I insist on your holding your head up. I will not have you before me in that attitude, etc., etc. A chapter having been read through twice, the books were closed and the girls examined. The lesson had comprised part of the reign of Charles I, and there were sundry questions about tonnage and poundage and ship money, which most of them appeared unable to answer. Still, every little difficulty was solved instantly when it reached Burns. Burns. Her memory seemed to have retained the substance of the whole lesson, and she was ready with answers on every point. I kept expecting that Miss Scatcherd would praise her attention, but instead of that she suddenly cried out, You dirty, disagreeable girl! You have never cleaned your nails this morning! Burns made no answer. I wondered at her silence. Why, thought I, does she not explain that she could neither clean her nails nor wash her face as the water was frozen? My attention was now called off by Miss Smith desiring me to hold a skein of thread. While she was winding it, she talked to me from time to time, asking whether I had ever been at school before, whether I could mark, stitch, knit, etc., till she dismissed me I could not pursue my observations on Miss Scatcherd's movements. When I returned to my seat, that lady was just delivering an order of which I did not catch the import. But Burns immediately left the class and going into the small inner room where the books were kept, returned in half a minute, carrying in her hand a bundle of twigs tied together at one end. This ominous tool she presented to Miss Scatcherd with a respectful curtsy. Then she quietly, and without being told, unloosed her pinafore, and the teacher instantly and sharply inflicted on her neck a dozen strokes with the bunch of twigs. Not a tear rose to Burns's eye, and while I paused for my sewing because my fingers quivered at this spectacle with a sentiment of unavailing and impotent anger, not a feature of her pensive face altered its ordinary expression. Hardened girl, exclaimed Miss Scatcherd, nothing can correct you of your slatternly habits. Carry the rod away. Burns obeyed. I looked at her narrowly as she emerged from the book closet. She was just putting back her handkerchief into her pocket, and the trace of a tear glistened on her thin cheek. The play hour in the evening I thought the pleasantest fraction of the day at Lowood. The bit of bread, the draft of coffee swallowed at five o'clock, had revived vitality, if it had not satisfied hunger. The long restraint of the day was slackened. The schoolroom felt warmer than in the morning. Its fires being allowed to burn a little more brightly to supply, in some measure, the place of candles not yet introduced. The ruddy gloaming, the licensed uproar, the confusion of many voices gave one a welcome sense of liberty. On the evening of the day on which I had seen Miss Scatcherd flog her pupil, Burns, I wandered as usual among the forms and tables and laughing groups without a companion, yet not feeling lonely. When I passed the windows, I now and then lifted a blind, and looking out, it snowed fast. A drift was already forming against the lower panes. Putting my ear close to the window, I could distinguish from the gleeful tumult within, the disconsolate moan of the wind outside. Probably, if I had lately left a good home and kind parents, this would have been the hour when I should most keenly have regretted the separation. That wind would then have saddened my heart. This obscure chaos would have disturbed my peace, As it was, I derived from both a strange excitement, and reckless and feverish I wished the wind to howl more wildly, the gloom to deepen to darkness, and the confusion to rise to clamor. Jumping over forms, forms are benches, and creeping under tables, I made my way to one of the fireplaces. There, kneeling by the high wire fender, I found Burns, absorbed, silent, abstracted from all round her by the companionship of a book. "'which she read by the dim glare of the embers. "'Is it still Rasselas?' I asked, coming behind her. "'Yes,' she said, "'and I have just finished it.' "'And in five minutes more she shut it up. "'I was glad of this. "'Now,' thought I, "'I can perhaps get her to talk.' "'I sat down by her on the floor. "'What is your name besides Burns?' "'Helen. "'Do you come a long way from here?' "'I come from a place farther north, quite on the borders of Scotland. "'Will you ever go back?' "'I hope so, but nobody can be sure of the future.' "'You must wish to leave Lowood.' "'No, why should I? "'I was sent to Lowood to get an education, "'and it would be of no use going away until I have attained that object.' "'But that teacher, Miss Scatcherd, is so cruel to you.' "'Cruel? Not at all. She is severe.' "'She dislikes my faults. "'And if I were in your place, I should dislike her. "'I should resist her. "'If she struck me with that rod, I should get it from her hand. "'I should break it under her nose.' "'Probably you would do nothing of the sort. "'But if you did, Mr. Brocklehurst would expel you from the school. "'That would be a great grief to your relations. "'It is far better to endure patiently a smart which nobody feels but yourself.' than to commit a hasty action whose evil consequences will extend to all connected with you. And besides, the Bible bids us return good for evil. But then it seems disgraceful to be flogged, and to be sent to stand in the middle of a room full of people? And you are such a great girl! I am far younger than you, and I could not bear it. Yet it would be your duty to bear it, if you could not avoid it. It is weak and silly to say you cannot bear what it is your fate to be required to bear. I heard her with wonder. I could not comprehend this doctrine of endurance, and still less could I understand or sympathize with the forbearance she expressed for her chastiser. She can't see how Helen could just take all this punishment, and also how she still has respect for Miss Scatcherd, the one punishing her. Still, I felt that Helen Burns considered things by a light invisible to my eyes. I suspected she might be right and I wrong, but I would not ponder that matter deeply. Like Felix, I put it off to a more convenient season. You say you have faults, Helen. What are they? To me, you seem very good. Then learn from me not to judge by appearances. I am, as Miss Scatcherd said, slatternly, that means like dirty or untidy. I seldom put and never keep things in order. I am careless, I forget rules, I read when I should learn my lessons, I have no method, and sometimes I say, like you, I cannot bear to be subjected to systematic arrangements. This is all very provoking to Miss Scatcherd, who is naturally neat, punctual, and particular. And cross and cruel, I added. But Helen Birds would not admit my addition. She kept silence. Is Miss Temple as severe to you as Miss Scatcherd? At the utterance of Miss Temple's name, a soft smile flitted over her grave face. Miss Temple is full of goodness. It pains her to be severe to anyone, even the worst in the school. She sees my errors and tells me of them gently, and, if I do anything worthy of praise, she gives me my meed liberally. One strong proof of my wretchedly defective nature is that even her expostulations, so mild, so rational, have not influence to cure me of my faults, and even her praise, though I value it most highly, cannot stimulate me to continued care and foresight. So Helen is saying that she's, she must be truly flawed, because when Miss Temple is so kind and tries to set her right, she still can't stop being absent-minded or untidy. That is curious, said I. It is so easy to be careful. For you, I have no doubt it is. I observed you in your class this morning, and saw you were closely attentive. Your thoughts never seemed to wander while Miss Miller explained the lesson and questioned you. Now mine continually rove away. When I should be listening to Miss Scatcherd and collecting all she says with assiduity, that means close attention, often I lose the very sound of her voice. I fall into a sort of dream. Sometimes I think I am in Northumberland, and that the noises I hear round me are the bubbling of the little brook which runs through Deepden near our house. Then, when it comes to my turn to reply, I have to be awakened, and having heard nothing of what was read for listening to the visionary brook, I have no answer ready yet how well you replied this afternoon. It was mere chance. The subject on which we had been reading had interested me. This afternoon, instead of dreaming of Deepton, I was wondering how a man who wished to do right could act so unjustly and unwisely as Charles I sometimes did. And I thought what a pity it was that, with his integrity and conscientiousness, he could see no farther than the prerogatives of the crown. If he had but been able to look to a distance and see how what they call the spirit of the ages was tending. Still, I like Charles. I respect him. I pity him. Poor murdered king. Yes, his enemies were the worst. They shed blood they had no right to shed. How dared they kill him? Helen was talking to herself now. She had forgotten I could not very well understand her, that I was ignorant, or nearly so, of the subject she discussed. I recalled her to my level. And when Miss Temple teaches you, do your thoughts wander then? No, certainly not often, because Miss Temple has generally something to say which is newer than my own reflections. Her language is singularly agreeable to me, and the information she communicates is often just what I wish to gain. Well, then with Miss Temple you are good. Yes, in a passive way. I make no effort. I follow as inclination guides me. There is no merit in such goodness. A great deal. You are good to those who are good to you. It is all I ever desire to be. If people were always kind and obedient to those who were cruel and unjust, the wicked people would have it all their own way. They would never feel afraid, and so they would never alter, but would grow worse and worse. When we are struck at without a reason, we should strike back again very hard. I am sure we should. So hard as to teach the person who struck us never to do it again. You will change your mind, I hope when you grow older. As yet, you are but a little untaught girl. But I feel this, Helen. I must dislike those who, whatever I do to please them, persist in disliking me. I must resist those who punish me unjustly. It is as natural as that I should love those who show me affection or submit to punishment when I feel it is deserved. Heathens and savage tribes hold that doctrine, but Christians and civilized nations disown it. How? I don't understand. It is not violence that best overcomes hate, nor vengeance that most certainly heals injury. What then? Read the New Testament and observe what Christ says and how he acts. Make his word your rule and his conduct your example. What does he say? Love your enemies. Bless them that curse you. Do good to them that hate you and despitefully use you then I should love Mrs. Reed, which I cannot do. I should bless her son John, which is impossible. In her turn, Helen Burns asked me to explain, and I proceeded forthwith to pour out, in my own way, the tale of my sufferings and resentments. Bitter and truculent when excited, I spoke as I felt, without reserve or softening. Helen heard me patiently to the end. I expected she would then make a remark, but she said nothing. Well, I asked impatiently, is not Mrs. Reed a hard-hearted bad woman? She has been unkind to you, no doubt, because, you see, she dislikes your cast of character, as Miss Scatcherd does mine. But how minutely you remember all she has done and said to you! What a singularly deep impression her injustice seems to have made on your heart! No ill-usage so brands its record on my feelings. Would you not be happier if you tried to forget her severity? together with the passionate emotions it excited? Life appears to me too short to be spent in nursing animosity or registering wrongs. We are, and must be, one and all, burdened with faults in this world. But the time will soon come when I trust we shall put them off in putting off our corruptible bodies, when debasement and sin will fall from us with this cumbersome frame of flesh, and only the spark of the Spirit will remain. The impalpable principle impalpable means you, you can't touch it, so something immaterial, something of the spirit. The impalpable principle of light and thought, pure as when it left the creator to inspire the creature. Whence it came, it will return, perhaps again to be communicated to some being higher than man, perhaps to pass through gradations of glory, from the pale human soul to brighten to the seraph. Surely it will never, on the contrary, be suffered to degenerate from man to fiend, No, I cannot believe that. I hold another creed, which no one ever taught me, and which I seldom mention, but in which I delight, and to which I cling, for it extends hope to all. It makes eternity a rest, a mighty home, not a terror and an abyss. Besides, with this creed I can so clearly distinguish between the criminal and his crime. I can so sincerely forgive the first while I abhor the last. With this creed, revenge never worries my heart. Degregation never too deeply disgusts me. Injustice never crushes me too low. I live in calm, looking to the end." So Helen is telling Jane her secret creed, which is that death is not to be feared, but rather welcomed, because it, it allows you to be free of your body, which she says is base and corrupt. And that means that she can see people who do bad things and are are just acting that way because they're in their sinful bodies. So she can love the sinner and hate the sin. So she lets all her trouble flow over her because her ultimate goal is freedom in death. Helen's head, always drooping, sank a little lower as she finished this sentence. I saw by her look she wished no longer to talk to me, but rather to converse with her own thoughts. She was not allowed much time for meditation, A monitor, a great rough girl, presently came up, exclaiming in a strong Cumberland accent, Helen Burns, if you don't go and put your drawer in order and fold up your work this minute, I'll tell Miss Scatchard to come and look at it. Helen sighed as her reverie fled, and getting up, obeyed the monitor without reply, as without delay. Thank you so much for listening. I'd love to know what you thought of the chapter. Is there anything you'd like me to clarify? Did something particularly interest you? Please go to my website, faithkmore.com, click on Contact, and send me your questions and thoughts. Or you can click on the link in the show notes to contact me. I'll feature one or two of your entries at the start of the next episode. Before I go, I'd like to ask a quick favor. This is an independent podcast. It's produced, recorded, and marketed by me. So I need your help. Please share this podcast with your friends. Post about it on social media. If you're studying literature at school, tell your teacher and your classmates about it. Talk about it in the break room at work. And if you could, please subscribe and leave a five star review wherever you're listening. I would really, really appreciate it. All right, everyone. Story time is over. To be continued.